so children may be dismissed to junior church. And I invite you to turn to Acts chapter two, but as I was starting to say, oftentimes we forget all the people that come together to help serve and make our worship services and Sunday school classes and other things possible. And so I'm very grateful for those that help prepare the communion bread and the juice and and help serve communion uh, today. So thank you. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14 here in a moment. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 14 here in a moment. So I invite you to turn your Bibles there. And I'm going to start with something just uh, more humorous to make it, to get your attention. Heard about this elderly lady. She was at the store. She accidentally locked her keys in her car. She had a coat hanger and she was trying and trying to get it unlocked but she just couldn't get it to open. She prayed and asked God to help her. About this time, this guy pulls up on a motorcycle, rough-looking guy, dressed in leather, tattoos, a skull cap. About 15 seconds, he had the car opened. She hugged him and said, Lord, thank you for sending me this nice man. He said, lady, I'm not a nice man. I just got out of prison for auto theft. She hugged him again and said, Lord, thank you. You even sent me a professional. <laughs> That's a joke, but it's a reminder that we thank the Lord for the common everyday things that he sends us. Maybe he'll send us a professional of a different nature when we need that and just kind of have that optimistic attitude. You know, as we begin today, we're going to look at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Peter's sermon delivered to him by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it makes me think, as we enter this, there are different types of preaching and different types of public speaking and different types of teaching. And repeatedly, Public speaking is listed as one of the greatest fears that most people have. In fact, Jerry Seinfeld had said, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death is number two. Does that sound right? This means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. Number one, fear, public speaking. Number two, death. Well, public speaking, delivering a a sermon and preaching and and teaching and proclaiming the word of God is a serious matter. But as far as public speaking goes, I was required to take public speaking in high school. I was required to take public speaking in college. I was required to take public speaking in seminary. And in high school, I was so nervous to deliver my speech It was terrible. My public speaking class was right after lunch. That just ruined lunch. It ruined the whole day. I would have rather have it right in the morning, get it out of the way. Certainly by college, I was a little more confident. And by seminary, I had preached and taught at church and and, and knew my audience a little bit better and was a little bit more confident. In like manner, I was required to take two preaching classes in college and one preaching class in seminary. By this time, I had done some preaching in my church and other churches, so I had a bit of confidence, even though I was preaching to my peers. And certainly at the seminary level and a little bit at the college level, we actually evaluated each other, which could be a a rough thing to go through afterwards. In, In college, we didn't have to preach without notes, but in seminary, the professor at Asbury Theological Seminary, Dr. Callis, Ron, your brother-in-law, I think, knew him and had him. Uh, they, he really wanted us to preach without notes, and that was just 
a terrifying experience. I still don't preach without notes. I try to be familiar, but it's a terrifying experience. In fact, once afterwards, uh, one of the students actually said, yeah, if I looked scared, I was. But as stated, there's different types of preaching, different types of teaching, different types of proclamation. There was one type of sermon that I had to deliver in college titled, A Story Told. A Story Told. This means that I was required to take the character or part in a Bible passage. A few years ago, when Christmas fell on Christmas Day, I delivered that type of sermon. I delivered a sermon based on, I tried to take the form of Joseph and even dress up as Joseph, Jesus' father, and talk and give the account of Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective. You could give a message from the church mouse's perspective. Or at one point in that class, I actually gave, I talked and gave a the narrative for 1 Samuel chapter 3 from Samuel's perspective. That's titled A Story Told. There's other types of preaching, of course. There's prophetic preaching, and there's topical preaching, and there's expository preaching. Expository preaching is my usual method. It's, it means I'm exposing the text. You preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. That's what we're doing right now. We're preaching through the book of Acts, verse by verse through books of the Bible, and an expository. That means we're exposing the text. And in a few weeks, I'm going to change the series through Lent, which is coming up early this year. If you didn't know, Ash Wednesday is just like a week and a half away. And through Lent, I'm going to do a series on Jesus's parables. And some of Jesus's, I don't think it's all going to be parables. Some things that uh, of accounts of Jesus and the gospels. Why do I tell you all of this? I'm talking about this because we are about to talk about Peter's first sermon in the book of Acts. This is Peter's very first sermon, and 3,000 are saved. First sermon, and 3,000 are saved. Now, how could he preach his very first sermon and see 3,000 saved? Because he was guided, led by, anointed by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work. It's not me, it's not you, it's not anyone. It's always, 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 always the Holy Spirit that does the work. We, now, we partner with the Holy Spirit. We obey the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit that does the saving. Yeah. I don't think Peter was nervous. Peter didn't have time to be nervous. Actually, as we read the account, as we look at the account, he didn't have a warning. It wasn't like... Uh, God said to him, Jesus said, as far as I know, Jesus did not say, hey, in 10 days, Peter, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be delivering the first sermon in the book of Acts. So you better be ready. Didn't work out that way. The Holy Spirit came upon them and he stands up and he preaches. Now, I, I should add here, that's not the model example for all of us. All of us, I've never had 3,000 saved in a sermon. I'm not, I don't know if I've had 3,000 saved at all. You can make the mistake of thinking, I'm just going to wait and let the Holy Spirit give me what I'm going to say. And that's great, but give the Holy Spirit something to work with. So we work on our sermons weeks in advance, at least I do. So I tend to show you that this sermon is an evangelistic sermon. This sermon by Peter is an evangelistic sermon. Peter is declaring that Jesus is the Messiah they were waiting for. Peter is declaring that Jesus is the Messiah they were waiting for. And Peter challenges them to repent and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There's an application at the end. Repent and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now think with me about evangelist. Can any of you think of an evangelist? Shout, shout out a name right now. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. I knew I was going to hear Billy Graham. 
I don't know why I thought I was going to hear Billy Graham. Um. Okay, so Cass said, uh, Joel Osteen, is he considered an evangelist? I don't know. I'll let, you can watch and listen to him and determine that. There, there are a lot of other evangelists out there. Greg Laurie being an evangelist. Who are you trying to think of? Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham would be another one. Maybe we forget about Franklin Graham and all his ministry and work and proclaiming the gospel. He's actually in Youngstown a couple years ago, and many of us came to see, went to see Franklin Graham. Uh, uh, Billy Sunday, if you go back 100 years ago, Billy Sunday was actually the first one to pave the way for Billy Graham renting out baseball stadiums. And Billy Sunday was a baseball player. When he was saved, he was a baseball player. And he became a Christian. He was on fire for the Lord. And he started preaching the gospel in baseball stadiums. So Billy Graham would be another one. You know, a few years ago, Billy Graham died. I don't know if you know that. Billy Graham is actually, he, his body died. He's with the Lord in heaven. And he's more alive now than he ever was before. But people are asking, who's the next Billy Graham? And I heard someone say, the next Billy Graham is the Uber driver in the car, is the mechanic working on your car, is the retail worker or the, or the waiter or waitress. You know? In other words, we are all evangelists everywhere, everywhere we go. But as we look at Acts chapter 2, we see Peter proclaiming Christ in the Billy Graham type way, so to speak, proclaiming Christ to the masses. By the way, Billy Graham did not start out proclaiming Christ to the masses. If you read about him, as I have, uh, one biography, as autobiography, as well as a few other documentaries, he started out street preaching and in one-on-one sharing the gospel and many other ways. But let's look at Acts 2. We're going to start at verse 14, and we're going to see Peter begins this sermon saying, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. In other words, what is happening, what is happening at Pentecost is the fulfillment of prophecy. So look with me at Acts 2, starting at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. Now, I want to explain why they think they're drunk in a moment. I want to put it in context. So we'll come back to that. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. That's an Old Testament prophet. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Last week, this whole chapter was read in the marvelous skit that was done. And last week, I preached on the first 13 verses, which is when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. Notice this, 
Peter stands up right now. The Holy Spirit has come upon the church and Peter stands up to address the crowd. He stands up to proclaim the fulfillment of the prophecy. This is all, that's why half of this passage right now, more than half, is a quote from Joel. This is fulfillment of prophecy. What is happening? The Holy Spirit coming upon the church is fulfillment of prophecy some 600, 700 years before their time and day. And we see this in the initial few verses. In verse 15, Peter begins to make a defense. He is stating that the people are not drunk. Again, remember our context. In the previous verses of Acts chapter two, the people received the Holy Spirit. The people started talking in foreign languages. They didn't know the languages they were speaking. The Holy Spirit gave them this miraculous gift of tongues, and they were talking in these foreign languages. And the others are likely wondering what is going on. And think about this. The Holy Spirit came upon the church like a mighty rushing wind. It is likely that anyone in the area heard a tornado type of wind. They saw tongues of fire. And now Peter starts to preach. And after seeing, hearing this mighty rushing wind, after seeing them and hearing them speaking in different languages that they did not know, they thought they were just common, ordinary people. They, they said, aren't they all just Galileans? And Galileans were not known as the most educated and the greatest speakers. They, they, they had an accent. They thought, how could this be? So they thought they were drunk. And that's why Peter says, no, it's only 9 a.m. It's too early to be drunk. I read in my studies that in that day, people would not drink wine without eating meat. And the meal that included the meat usually came in the evening. So in that way, in their culture in that time, they weren't drinking yet. It was too early. They weren't drunk. In verses 16 through 21, Peter begins to give an explanation, an explanation of what is going on, an explanation of this fulfillment of prophecy. And Peter quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32. As we go through the book of Acts, it is filled, completely just filled with Old Testament citations. The apostles knew the Old Testament. They knew the word of God. They cared about the word of God. They quoted the word of God constantly. In Joel 2, 28 through 32, we see his defense and his explanation. This passage was written following a locust invasion of the Jewish people, but Peter applies it to his day and age. This passage is saying that God will pour out his spirit in the last days. God will pour out his spirit in that last days. And I believe, at least partially, Peter's applying this passage to their day and age. At least partially, Peter's applying this passage to their day and age. The Holy Spirit is being proclaimed, and it is the last days. Peter is essentially stating that they are now in the last days. They are living in the last days. God says in this passage that in the last days, he will pour out his spirit on the people. God says that this will affect men and women who will both see visions and prophesy. This is an amazing prophecy which has now come about. Verse 19 mentions wonders and signs. This is really, really cool, really, really awesome, really, really amazing. In the book of Acts, wonders and signs almost always are listed together. Signs and wonders are almost always listed together and they are always attesting to the reality and the validity and the authenticity of the gospel account for people to be saved. That's what's going on here. There's wonders and signs and it's proclaiming the gospel. The miracles proclaim the gospel. 
Verse 20 of that uh, quote, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Verse 20 likely has not happened yet though there are differing views. So that's why I said this passage he's quoting from Joel, Joel chapter two, verses 28 through 32, it seems like he's quoting it as a partial fulfillment. It has partially been fulfilled in the rest of this passage, the rest of this prophecy will be fulfilled in the latter half of the last days. But we are, they were in the last days then. We are in the last days now. The last days began after Jesus ascended into heaven. After Jesus's death, resurrection and ascension, that began the last days, which will continue until Jesus comes again for his church. And then we see verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's still a quote from Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. And this is now happening. It started then. They're calling upon the name of the Lord and they're going to be saved. We're going to see in a moment, 3,000 are saved and it's going to continue. So even today, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are here, if those of us gathered here and we call ourselves Christians, that's because we've called upon the name of the Lord and we've been saved. Amen. Next, we see Peter proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. Look how Peter breaks down the gospel in Acts 2, 28 through, uh, 22 through 32. Let's look at the next 10 verses. He continues. Remember, he's preaching. He just continued. He, he just uh, gave this passage from the Old Testament. Now he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. Now he's going to quote the Old Testament again. Now he's going to quote Psalm 16. David says of him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we all are witnesses. Peter is proclaiming that Jesus' miracles, his works, attest that he is a Messiah. Peter references miracles and wonders and signs, but the greatest miracle was the resurrection. You ever think about that? The greatest miracle was the resurrection. The resurrection proved who Jesus was, who Jesus is. Do you ever think about that? How easy it is for us to neglect Forget and trivialize the resurrection. Jesus is not dead. Can you have a relationship with George Washington? I think a lot of George Washington. A few years ago, I read the Ron Chernow biography of him. It's a short biography, about a thousand pages. Really, really good. Really good. I've read other things. On, I think a lot of George Washington. 
can't have a relationship with him. Never met the guy. But I can have a relationship with Jesus because he's not dead. George Washington died. Jesus died and rose again and lives interceding at the right hand of the throne of God right now for us. And we can have a relationship with him because he rose again. Peter says his resurrection attested he is a Messiah in verses 23 through 32. Verse 25 begins a quote from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. And this attested Jesus as a Messiah. The writer is stating that God would not, the writer of Psalm 16, which he's saying is David, is saying that God would not allow Jesus to stay in the grave. In verse 29, Peter states that the writer of the Psalm is not talking about himself. They knew exactly where David's grave was. They could go to David's grave. This is David's grave. David was dead. But Jesus was resurrected, verse 31. So Peter is pointing back to the resurrection of Jesus. When we proclaim the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, we should never just say, Jesus died for our sins. We have to continue and say, and he rose again. He's not dead anymore. He rose again. And then we see in verses 33 through 36, Jesus, the glorified Messiah, poured forth the Holy Spirit. Look at these verses, Acts 2, 33 through 36. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice what Peter does again. He brings up another Old Testament reference. Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's again quoting the Old Testament to make the case that Jesus is Lord in Christ. He's the Messiah. And the people respond with the question of what they are to do. Look at verses 37 through 40. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The old KJV said, cut to the quick. I think that's what it says. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted. Peter gave this message inspired by the Lord. The Holy Spirit is at work amongst them. And they were convicted that they were a sinner in need of a savior. They were convicted. So they respond. They said to Peter, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, this is awesome. Look at verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Peter does not hold back. They must repent and be baptized into Jesus. They must repent and be baptized into Jesus. Notice how he says, the promise is for you and for your children, and for anyone who are far off. Why is he saying that? Because this is happening at the Feast of Pentecost, and all these people are gathered in, in, in Jerusalem from many other different countries, many different nationalities, many different languages. Many of them would be Gentiles. They would be non-Jews. And Peter is saying, the promise is for you too, Gentiles. The promise is not for the Jewish people only. The promise is for everyone. That's why we're here today. 
across the world over 2,000 years later because the promise is for you, us as well. That's why later on, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, verses 8 through 11, John has his heavenly vision. He sees a great multitude of many tribes, tongues, and nationalities worshiping in heaven because the promise is for everyone, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, knowing Jesus will be saved. So we began talking about evangelists and we shared Billy Graham and I want to go back this. I was going to go that way, but I'm going to go back this way because I need something out of the front pew in a minute. Um, and I should be careful what I say. Cassandra mentions Joel Osteen. I actually listen to Joel Osteen occasionally just because I listen to people. I'm not, not endorsing nor endorsing someone. Uh, but Joel Osteen does proclaim Christ. So in that way, he is proclaiming the gospel. He's more of a pastor evangelist. So I'll just say that right now. Um, whereas Billy Graham was more of a, a, a special anointing God had placed on his life. And God does that for many, many different people. And it could be an Uber driver. But whether, you're, whether that's God's special calling on you or not, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're all called to proclaim the gospel. We are also called to believe the gospel, yeah. to, to believe the gospel, to accept the gospel, to, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, I forgot to tell Ken, but I have a couple pictures for him to throw up on the screens, and they're not that visible. I wanted better pictures, but we got this new puppy. His name's Dash. I was going to bring him in, but it might have been a media circus, so I didn't bring him in. Um, can you see those pictures? They're at the bottom. They're just at the bottom. There's one. That's Dash. I'm sorry. Like I said, they're not that visible. So you might be able to see Dash. We got this new puppy a few weeks ago, Dash. And um, again, you can meet him. Let me know. There he is again. And there's one more picture of him. He's just tiny. He's like four or five pounds. And he's a purebred mutt. He's a purebred mutt. <laughs> Uh, his, his mom is a Shih Tzu mixed with a Pinkanese, and his dad is a uh, Silky Terrier, and, um, and he's a cute little puppy. The thing about Dash, though, the thing about puppies is he doesn't earn his keep. <laughs> we're, we're cleaning up after him. We're picking up after him. The kids are doing good for now. Hopefully, they keep doing good. They're, they're really helping a lot. You know, the first few nights, we're up at 4 a.m. taking him outside. We're we had to put something under our deck because he keeps trying to get under there. So last Monday after evening, I'm hammering something up and I certainly hit my finger with the hammer and I said, this dog, you know, that's what we do for dogs though. That's what we do for others. That's what we do for babies. It's grace. Grace means unmerited favor, unearned favor. When you take care of a pet, oftentimes they don't earn their keep. Out of grace, you provide for them. You provide food and shelter and you clean up after them and you take care of them. And sometimes maybe you get a big dog, they earn their keep later, protecting the house or herding sheep. I don't know. I don't think he'll ever earn his keep, but, but uh, he's cute. So that, we'll give him that one. It's grace. Babies receive grace too, right? You have babies and when you have a baby, you bring them home and you provide for them. You take care of them and, and you love them all their days. What is that little children's book called? I'll Love You Forever, which is an amazing tearjerker book. You provide for them and it's total grace. It's, it's unearned, it's unmerited favor. And babies and the puppy illustration I just gave, which doesn't even compare to how amazing babies and human lives are, they have something in common with the gospel. God freely gave us salvation. And that's what Peter proclaims. It's not by works. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by, it's freely. 
is God's grace. It's God's grace. And when we accept, when we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, when we receive him as Lord and Savior, we are receiving the grace of God. And we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he changes us. The gospel changes us. I once heard a pastor giving a message, giving a devotion at a mission trip, and he said, he said, when he became a Christian, he started liking people. He didn't like people before he was a Christian. After that, he liked people. The gospel changes us. And, and I wanted to bring up something. It's an illustration because I used to ask people, um, like family and friends and others, hey, why aren't you going to church? Why aren't you at church? And then I realized, why do I ask about church? Why don't I ask about values? People act consistent. People act consistent with their values. This is a magnet full of sockets. I got a tool thing a few weeks, a few years ago, and like it's got magnets within it. I don't know if you can tell, but this is one magnet. We used to use it in our cupboards to keep the babies out of them, and it's like holding multiple sockets to it. And if I pull it away, there's a I'll be looking for that socket someday. That's how my tools are. My tools are like all thrown over. Like I did not have to mess up these sockets to put them like this. They were already messed up. Um, because then I have an excuse not to work on things. Uh, but like it'll like draw them up. When we become a Christian and we receive the Holy Spirit, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws us to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is like a, a magnet drawing us to the Lord and to the things of the Lord. Be it the bride of Christ, which is a church, the word of God, the word of God, the people of God, prayer and, and spiritual disciplines, fasting and solitude and other things. And so sometimes when we are not drawn to the church or the things of God for a longer period of time, we all have our dry spells, but we need to reflect and think, Lord, what's going on with me right now? Yeah. And sometimes we might even have to ask the harder question, do I really know the Lord? Don't take my word for it. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, that says to examine yourself and make sure you're in the faith unless you fail the test. What's the test? I preached on that. I've said before, I think it's repentance. A, a, a believer in Christ repents when they realize they were out of line the way they talked to somebody or, or maybe in pride or maybe in many other different things, gossip or slander or, or, or um, other sexual sins or rob, whatever it might be, we repent. But I think another examination is, am I drawn to the things of the Lord? Because the Holy Spirit inside of us is like a magnet just pulling me to the Lord, just drawing me. This is another magnet, just drawing me to the things of the Lord. So I'm like stuck to the Lord, like they're stuck together. I'm stuck to the Lord. And, and the Holy Spirit's not letting go. The Holy Spirit draws us to him. Are we drawn to the Lord? Peter preached at Pentecost. 3,000 are saved. We're going to talk more about that next week as we look at the early church next too, 42 through 47. They were changed. The church was changed because when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, he changes us. And it's all a changing because we're united with the Lord. We're connected. We're not our own anymore. We're, we're not alone anymore. Sometimes Mercedes or Abigail will hang out in my office while I'm in a meeting or Bible study or something like that. And I'll come back in my office and highlighters are out and 
sticky notes are arranged, but a few times there's sticky notes on my desk. To Dad, I love you. Have an awesome day. Sadie. There's one written in pencil that, you know, had another message, and sometimes Abigail will write something, and, and sometimes after a while, I leave them stuck to my desk for a while and think, I can't, I can't leave them there, but I can't get rid of them. You know, there's a bond within a family. So I stick in my Bible. There's a bond within a family because your family, there should be that bond. You never want it to go away because your family, you love each other. And so I treasure those messages from Mercedes and, and Abigail. It leaves me messages too. And sometimes they're right on the whiteboard. You know, we treasure those messages. And there's a bond within the family of God. And it starts with our relationship with God the Father who loves us and leaves messages to us in his word. It took care of our sin problem, dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus, and rising again. And we, when, when we do what Peter said, repent and be baptized, everyone in the, in the name of Jesus, and we do that, we see the Holy Spirit. We're drawn to him. The Holy Spirit makes us yearn for the things of God. Now, again, don't go too crazy if you have a day or two where you're known to have that drawing, or maybe even we all have different dry spells. We do need to pray about them. We do need to seek spiritual guidance about them. We need to pour, when we have those dry spells, we need to just pour ourselves even more into the word of God, into prayer, into journaling, into fasting. This illustration actually comes because I was talking to family who haven't been involved in individual or corporate spiritual disciplines for over 20 years. Individual spiritual disciplines, you're in daily devotions. Corporate or church-wide, you know, being in corporate worship, small groups, prayer partners, Sunday school, etc. And I started having to say, and I said, I don't, I don't want a response. But I'm just asking you to think, why aren't you drawn to the things of the Lord? Because Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable of the sower. Some of the seed gets plucked out. The Deceitfulness of riches, Jesus actually said, makes a seed not get good root. We want to pray that we are in good soil and we are the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, like a magnet, draws us to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would all have a heart searching every Sunday, but really every day. And we would all say, Lord, may the seed within me be on good soil. May the seed of the gospel within me grow. Regardless of how old I am, regardless of how long I've been a Christian, may the seed within me continue to sprout and grow and make me grow up as a believer in Christ and not be plucked out or picked up by the crows and the sparrows. Lord Jesus, this is important for me to share because I believe most of the people in this room, if not all of them, would claim to be Christians for many, many, many years. But that doesn't mean we don't reflect. We reflect. And we say, Lord God, continue to do a new work with the gospel in all of us. Lord Jesus, I want to ask right now if there's anyone gathered here who has not surrendered. Or maybe they're thinking, whoa, I'm not yearning for the Lord and I haven't for some time. Maybe I never have. First John 1, 9, Lord, you're faithful. You're righteous. When we confess our sins, you forgive us and you cleanse us. And for those who have never confessed sin, 
never made that first time confession, may today be the day to confess they're a sinner in need of a savior, to believe in you as the one and only savior, trust in you and commit to receive you as Lord and Savior, which means a treasuring of the gospel. It's an affection for you. It's not an easy believism. And we know, Lord Jesus, there's forgiveness. There's hope. You are our hope. And we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for the awesome hope that we have in you, that you give us unmerited favor, grace. When we were stuck in our sins, you took care of our sin problem, dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. Lord Jesus, may we all leave encouraged by the faith we have in you. And for some, if they need to renew their faith, repent, may they turn to you and do that. Maybe rededicate their life to you, may they do that. Maybe some need to make that first time confession, like I said, may they do that. But may we all leave renewed in the faith. I thank you, Lord God, for the Holy Spirit within us. That we're not alone. You are drawing us, drawing us, drawing us to you. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.